0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor.
1: Welcome to the 100th episode of the Out of the Question podcast steve congratulations we've gotten this far
0: yes we have and i think that there will be an abundance of more episodes
1: i hope so and the abundance comment had to do with the fact that today we're going to look at the subject of scarcity it seems with all the turmoil that goes on in our world on a semi-regular basis but maybe much more so now There's this whole idea that if one person has something, by definition, somebody else has less. So it's always that people are competing for resources. Now, scripturally, the Bible talks about abundance, and those in Christ have abundance in their life. So the question is, why are people so obsessed with the idea of scarcity?
0: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the political moment that we are in today, and that people have adopted a view of the world that views the entire world as one pie, you know, one big piece of pie, or one big pie you just took out of the oven, and they see all the resources, the amount of money, or the amount of space, or the amount of jobs, or even the capacity to do something, as in terms of this pie. And so when somebody gets a paycheck, it takes a piece out of that pie. Or when somebody has a a windfall, that takes a piece out of that pie. Or when somebody becomes a doctor, now there's less spaces for someone to become a doctor. Because they view the world as this contained, and what economists and political scientists might describe as a zero-sum game, the world sees each slice as a personal attack on them. And therefore, they have to justify or work against any aggression against them by defending their pieces of pie or villainizing those who are attacking their pieces of the pie.
1: So it seems to me that you could kind of break a mindset into two categories, those who are sure there's not enough and those who are sure that they could work for the things they want. And this really came home to me in the last three months when toilet paper became the thing that was scarce and people were lining up and it was being rationed. And you'd walk into the stores and the the paper goods aisle was just totally blank. And there was this frenzy that was produced by the scarcity. Now you go into the stores and somehow or other, those shelves are not empty anymore. And I hear people breathing a sigh of relief. It's so good that finally, you know, we don't have to compete for these resources. Do you think the whole idea of scarcity is something that's promoted for other ends?
0: Certainly it's promoted for another end. There is actually a agenda behind scarcity thinking. Uh, I, I would say that as a Christian, the scarcity thinking goes all the way back to the book book of genesis as an affront to god's command right so god's command uh, in the book of genesis to adam and eve or to noah or to even abraham is be fruitful and multiply you know the idea for adam is that the garden would cover the earth or for noah that his seeds would cover the earth or for abraham that they would be like the sands on the seashore or the stars in the sky they'd be so vast that they cannot even be counted so god's Worldview has always been one of plenteousness or abundance, not scarcity. Uh, The word in the Bible is fruitfulness. But the attack uh, or scarcity has really taken a foothold with uh, different movements of the last 200 years. I think if you look at uh, the political commentary, you look at people like Thomas Malthus of the 18th century, who first postulated the idea of... uh, overpopulation. The idea was a direct affront to the call of Adam and Eve, right? So men and women are to be fruitful and multiply, and here we have a minister in the 18th century saying, well, if everybody multiplies, eventually we will run out of space on the planet. And he had this idea that there'd be a linear growth, you know, just like we would do when we track uh, the Hebrews in Goshen or the descendants from Noah to fill the earth, he did a similar type of thing and said, well, within a generation or two, our whole world's going to be overpopulated, so we should probably limit how many people end up on this planet. But that kind of scarcity thinking is in direct contradiction with the 8,000 years of recorded creation that says that as populations increase, we don't have an increase in scarcity. We have an increase in abundance. And what men like uh, Thomas Malthus, who first postulated this idea of of overpopulation, what they were doing is they were limiting the ingenuity of man under God's covenant. They were saying, the way it's always been is the way it's going to be. But God says that you have come to do miracles greater than even Christ did. And so Christian history, a minister like Thomas should have understood, shows that individuals always find abundance in the kingdom, yet the world says, scarcity, less limiting thoughts.
1: So really, we're talking about worldview and presuppositions. Uh, You go back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, where the first 14 verses talk about what happens to a people who obey God and follow his commandments. And then the rest of the chapter, which is quite a bit longer than those four, first 14 verses talks about what happens when people don't. And in those, then that second portion, there is a lot of scarcity. There is a lot of disease. There is a lot of problems. So I think it's safe to say that man in covenant with God is going to experience abundance if he follows God's law and man at war with God will always see a scarcity because he's working contrary to how he was created
0: the interest in the last 100 years has really been exemplified uh, through the movements like environmentalism or the evolutionist who used the excuse of scarcity to control who is desirable, or which traits are good, or which groups of people deserve to be protected, Uh, because inside uh, the biblical worldview is this idea that through abundance, the kingdom will cover the earth, and everybody will become like Christ. But if you are able to turn that paradigm on its head, which is what sin did, then scarcity then becomes a type of filter by which power is consolidated not to obedience to the covenant, But to those who are obedient to scarcity. And so if you go to Charles Darwin, uh, who postulated the idea of the survival of the species, and you apply it as Darwin did to human populations, you get things like eugenics. And eugenics says that there's a a scarcity of good genes, right? So some people are going to be derelict and some people are going to be good. And so we should limit populations that are derelict, just like in evolution, natural selection limits those bad traits from getting passed on to the next generation. So scarcity became a tool or a bludgeon for men like Darwin and the social Darwinism that fell beneath him to use race or gender or class or all of these other more scarce attributes to limit who is worthy of continuing on, and who needs to be eradicated. And you can see that that social Darwinism led to all kinds of strange things in the 19th and 20th century with race, but it also gave way to environmentalism. And environmentalism uh, allowed us to see the world as scarce, contrary to what God's Word says, and to see the materials and resources as scarce. And therefore, we needed another power, not God, to divide and decide who deserves the resources, who gets the gold, who gets the oil, who gets the water, who gets the air. The scarcity mentality of these resources then determines who's in power. And so government organizations, whether it's the United States or the UN or the Kyoto Protocol, then come in to usurp the role of God to divvy up the resources. Now, the problem is God says the earth is his. And so scarcity, again, is a direct affront to the idea that there's an abundance and that God's in control.
1: So let's bring it closer to home. Um, I think a lot of people who are listening would say, absolutely, I see it. How do you think scarcity makes its way into our thinking and affects us even as those who don't espouse the doctrines of humanism, or evolution, or this idea of that we're an overpopulated planet and what we need to do is decrease it. How does scarcity kind of make its way into the mind of a Christian unawares?
0: It becomes a really apparent issue when you talk about Christian families right? So at Calcedon and, and uh, Dr. Rushdie would talk about the family as the most powerful institution in society. The family is uh, the, the kind of the crux of all social development. And so if you want to see the church grow, you strengthen the family. If you want to see a godly nation, you strengthen the family. If you want to see godly children, strengthen the family. But if you take scarcity and you put that mentality into the family, suddenly who you get to marry becomes a matter of scarcity. Well, I'm looking for the perfect person who fits all of my criteria, and there's a scarcity of men that way, or a scarcity of women that way. And then if you happen to find that one soulmate, that scarce soulmate, um, then, you know, who's going to earn the money to pay for this family? Well, scarcity says, well, both people need to work, and they both need to have a double income to fight the scarcity that is rent and Resources and entertainment. And then when they talk about having children, scarcity creeps in here again. And while the scripture says children are a gift, a blessing, another opportunity for abundance, scarcity says don't have too many children. Maybe one, maybe two. But if you have more than that, you're going to run out of money. Who can afford to feed, clothe, and educate more than that many children? And so the family is directly assaulted in every way by scarcity. And then we can see it in a larger scale, not just on individuals, but in countries like China, scarcity teaches that the future of the nation depends on everybody having one child. Or in India, the future of this overpopulated people depends on sex-selective abortion. No girls, or no misborn, or uh, have the wrong chromosomes, or the genetic defects. And then you see scarcity even in, you know, South America, where forced sterilization, or forced birth control, you only get government assistance if you sterilize yourself or are on the hormonal birth control. So the scarcity mindset really attacks at the root the family. And it's no surprise that the, the mentality pushing the scarcity is the state.
1: So it is a stretch to say there is consummate evil behind these ideas that attack the family and make it so that God says it's the most powerful and primary of institution, but people look around and say, families don't look very strong to me. So do you think it's meant to undercut the scripture and that those who purport these things are purposely doing so because unfortunately they know more about the scripture than many professing Christians?
0: Well, I I believe that maybe a hundred years ago it was intentional, but I think today... Most Christians don't know their scripture well enough to fight back at these talking points, and most Christians just accept that that's the truth. And um, so they're not actively uh, being dissuaded of what the scripture teaches. It's their churches aren't strong enough. Their pulpits aren't brave enough. Their Bible studies aren't wise enough to say this is the clear teaching of God, and so they accept the teaching of the world, which says that the world is scarce, that God's not in control, that we're going to be raptured out soon to be rescued. The family appears weak because for the last 100 years in America, the family's been under attack and nobody has come to its rescue.
1: It's interesting, even with this whole attitude towards how we're supposed to prevent illness, this latest virus That even health then appears to be scarce and you've got to try to preserve your own health. And when that doesn't work, then they have to accuse you of trying to mess up somebody else's health. So the more I thought about this topic, the more I realized that anytime there's this idea of scarcity, it's trying to have people walk by sight rather than faith in God and what it does is it undermines people's Christian witness, even to themselves.
0: Right. And it divides the Christians, not by who's in the covenant and who's not in the covenant, not by who's obedient to God's commands and who's disobedient, but it divides along the haves and the have-nots, uh, which is not a Christian boundary, but a Marxist or, or secularist boundary. And the intention there is to, move to a society where Christian boundaries are not consequential. You know, if you look at the criticism of the Christian family, the criticism is that it provides a stable and consistent and regulatory environment for the individual. One of the things that people really hate about theonomic societies or theonomic cultures is that there is this rigidity of expectation and with that, the promise of a certain outcome. Now that is in stark contrast to a a modern view that says the reason why everybody's outcome isn't the same is because the haves have taken it away from the have-nots, whereas the Christian perspective says the reason why everybody's outcome isn't the same is because everybody, the haves and the have-nots are not obeying God's command. And so in a sense, the great debate has been shifted from whether or not God is in control to how can we as those who have not take from those who have.
1: Right, and it gets weird. You're in discussions about reparations and that people, because of the color of their skin, owe reparations. I find it particularly interesting because our law has gotten away from the biblical premise of restitution as opposed to reparations. The Bible doesn't talk about reparations. It talks about if you injure or deface or do something to someone else's property or there's an offense, there is a prescribed way of making restitution so that there are things that are whole. It's never based on your class of person that I don't like or you have a certain characteristic I don't like that the law is extremely objective and all people have to look at the law to determine the right and wrong, which is something that's not at all prevalent today.
0: Right. And the other part or the other side of the law is a statement on anthropology. So the reason why St. Paul emphasizes the idea of the law or the reason why the New Testament focuses on The law, or the reason why Jesus Christ says, If you love me, keep my commandments, is because what the law says is that the individual has broken the law. And so, contrary to the modern idea that man is basically good or that man is free to make his own decisions, what the Bible teaches is that man is basically depraved, basically sinful, meaning that their wants, motivations, and desires. Are self-interested. And so if you believe that the world is scarce, right, there's a limited supply of the world, limited opportunities in the world, and you recognize that people are basically evil, well then there's always going to be a fight for those limited resources. Now the problem is the the Marxist or the the secularist or the Keynesian, all of these other types of anti-Christian worldviews that teach scarcity, they recognize or they proclaim that the man is basically good, that we'll do what's in the best interest of others. And so governments can be trusted to evenly distribute goods. Governments should be trusted to be just to individuals. And what is really missing is what's at the root of the law and the root of Calvinism is that because man is self-interested, because man is, has a proclivity towards sin, then in a world that is full of economic or social activities, there's always a sense in which there's a market. There's always a sense in which there's a calculation being made where there's an exchange of goods, ideas, roles, persons, and I think this really gets to the heart of it when we think of Jesus's words during the temptation, when they talk about the idea of turning stones into bread, and the Christian worldview says, you know, the Lord comes and he gives me living water. The Lord comes and he gives me bread that I never hunger again, that the promise of the Christian is this sense of prosperity or abundance. But in Jesus's own temptation, there is this idea that that is covenantal, that you can't just expect, based on good intentions, that The dirt or the stones of this world will become gold. This isn't a measure of alchemy. But when you mix these two systems of scarcity and the basic goodness of man, we then distribute power and control over what are perceived to be scarce resources in a way that subjects man that's really what satan wanted there at the temptation of jesus not that jesus would really be fed but that he would be controlled by satan that he would bow the knee to satan's authority and i think that's really the root of what all of these discussions are coming at today instead of going through with covenantal obedience to the law we want the satans of this world you know the antichrists of this world to simply translate our difficulties, our stones, our shortcomings, our lack of skills, our lack of opportunities into bread so that we might not have to do anything for them. Yet Jesus gave us the example that we're going to fast for our bread. We're going to be obedient even to the point of death for our bread.
1: I think this really demonstrates the fact that if the church understood the power of the law in force, if it understood the power of strong families rather than trying to attract individuals who would come to their churches to feel better, if people really embraced the idea that there is a war in progress, I think some people might wake up to find out they're on the wrong side. They're in the wrong army because they're fighting the wrong battle.
0: That's right. And it comes down to what do most people want as a result of their Christian life? And I think for a lot of Christians, it's been separated, spiritual wants and material wants. They've been told that uh, providing for your family, that's a worldly concern, that your vocation is a worldly concern, your job, your career, your education, those are worldly concerns. What Jesus really cares about is where you pray how you worship, and that type of thinking has allowed the kind of market of politics or the market of the family or the market of jobs to be dominated by the monopoly of the world. And the only way to break up a monopoly is not more intervention, but by the competition of better businesses, of better market competitors. And so for the family to reassert its role as the the chief changer in culture, We have to, again, go back and say, God has made promises to the family, promises of abundance, promises of not scarcity, and to trust the Lord in those.
1: And I think as the tumultuous situation plays itself out, I think people have to be very cautious as to where they get their information, where they get their point of view because it's easy to manipulate a scared people. So for example, if you tell someone that if they go into an enclosed space, the chances are they who are not sick could make somebody else sick. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to not overload hospitals because hospital beds are so scarce. And then we'll have you know a scarcity of medical equipment. It's feeding this idea that either I'm the culprit or the other person is the culprit. And it doesn't really make for any sense of community. And if the covenant is anything, it's about community.
0: That's right. And there's an equal ultimacy to this community as well. So there's the idea that this community of Christ is his body. And so where scarcity says we only have so much to put together, the Christian doctrine says that out of these rags, the works of the saints, comes a new future. And the hope for tomorrow, you're talking in terms of healthcare, comes from Christians who are not only obedient to to God's law, but are faithful in their other spheres. Uh, The great travesty in our country today is that excuses like this virus or medical systems and the breaking down of them do not expose to Christians the weakness of the system. A person who was not raised in the system could look into what's happened here in this country and say, there's obviously a broken system here. You need something that's different to fix it. But yet we who watch Fox News against MSNBC in America go back and forth from these two humanist solutions thinking that if we just go this direction towards humanism or that direction towards humanism we're going to find a new solution when the answer is to return to something that hasn't yet been tried
1: i think that's where the mission field is for today to really seize the opportunities when people come to you whether you have a business and people come to you or in the case you have a school and people are looking for ways that their children be educated, that we not miss the one-on-one opportunity to share the truth of the law and the gospel and let someone know, no matter how oppressed you were in the past, no matter how much you didn't have when you were growing up, the fullness of a life in Jesus Christ and embracing the idea that obedience not only brings blessings, but it brings the quantity of blessings that you can't outrun.
0: That's right. And that's pictured all throughout creation. The very fact that God causes the sun to rise, that God causes the, the rain to fall. And the scripture is very clear on the just and the unjust, the fact that God uses those natural pictures to grow our food, to sustain life, to provide us with nutrients and vitamins, says that we live in a world of abundance. And yet we continually constrain ourselves by thinking in terms of scarcity. Now, scarcity is real. When you look at your bank account, you only have so many dollars in there today. And when you look at your city block, there are only so many houses that fit on that square mile. But what is missed in this type of thinking is the growth and the change that happens to a culture that submits itself to Christianity. The idea of the hospital, the idea of the university, were scarce in the first century. And in fact, the idea of the university existed only with Christians out in the desert, you know, five disciples and a leader. That was the university of the first century. Or the hospital. The hospital of the third century was individual Christians going into the households of the sick when no one else would and offering care and prayer. That is in one sense a scarce resource. There's only a few Christian apothecaries, right? But today there is a dominant system of Western culture that's provided health care and education. But we have forgotten that while it started out scarce, it grew into abundance through the prosperity of Christ's grace. Now, that might seem far-fetched, but we've experienced it even in our own lifetime. Uh, you might have seen this, Andrea, with uh, different Facebook memes. But who is the greatest taxi cab service in the country? You know, If you're going to talk about people who deliver the most rides in a cab, what's the largest company you think that does rides for people looking for a, a pick-me-up?
1: Well, I was going to say, when you asked the question in terms of who does the most things, I would say moms do in transporting their children. <laughs> is, is that the answer?
0: <laughs> well, I'm thinking of like in terms of businesses, right? So if you think about, you grew up in New York, there's probably lots of taxi cab companies, yellow there, taxi, yeah. checkered cab, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. A lot of them were family owned. You got five or six cars, things like that. But, to, but they had to buy their cars or rent their cars or lease their cars, And the idea that one taxi cab company might have 100 cars was kind of like, you know, that'd be a great business. But today, the greatest, as far as economically powerful, taxi cab service is something like Uber or Lyft. And how many taxi cabs do they own? Zero. Right. So there's a sense in which there's an abundance that we didn't even realize existed 20 years, <laughs> that now became a system for creating wealth. Uh, another great example of this, and, and I think it's in Peter Thiel's book, uh, where he talks about the idea of scarcity of space when, when cars were not even an invention in New York City. So they were talking, and you can find newspaper headlines of this, of New York City being overrun with fecal matter from horses. Right? because so many people are taking horse-drawn carriage. There's going to be three-foot-tall piles covering every city square inch in New York City if our population keeps growing and our need for horses keeps growing. Well, now that's kind of laughable to think that the world or that the city would be overrun by horse poop because nobody uses a horse. A horse is kind of like a novelty for uh, the police or a novelty for tourists, But there's never any fear that the world's going to be overrun by by horse manure. Yet that was top of the headlines 100 years ago. That kind of scarcity thinking doesn't take into account that Christians in a post-millennial worldview are actually changing the world. The world's not a static linear thing. We are actually making it better, families better, economics better, healthcare better, education better. And that's what God and what our Lord promised would happen as a result of obeying his covenant commands.
1: It's funny that you brought that up because my husband's uncle had the first car dealership in New Jersey, and people thought he was crazy, that nobody would buy a car. It would be just a novelty, and it would never replace horses and As you just put it, um, I doubt there's too many places in Trenton, New Jersey (laughs) that are populated with horses and and, and horse poop, which incidentally had its own share of illness attached to it. You know, people want to go back to the good old bucolic days, except there was a lot of horse poop and that meant there was a lot of flies, which meant that there was a lot of possibility of, you know, transmitting disease. So I, I think I think it's Chesterton, because I've recently been reading Chesterton, who talks about the fact that we have ceased to marvel at the obvious.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: how many people marvel at the fact that in this pandemic, you could talk to people across the world because of an internet connection, or how many people marvel at the fact that you could go visit relatives who are an hour, two hours, three hours away, that wasn't something that was common. So because we have not proceeded to thank God for the advancements that he has allowed man to do, we start taking miraculous things, which to people a couple of hundred years ago would be very miraculous, and we've just said, oh, that's just the way it is. And I think that has a lot to do with the ingratitude of our culture and the fact that people think that in order for me to win, you have to lose.
0: Yes. And there's just a, an ignorance of what the foundation of, of America or modern life is. Many people have this misguided notion that there was some kind of scientific revolution that happened out of nowhere and suddenly the religious foundations were pulled aside and we could finally make progress. Well, the reality is just the opposite. It's the Puritan Calvinistic foundation of America that built the university, that built the, <laughs> that built the academy, that created the progress. And so what we're seeing today is as we lose the academy, as you know, Berkeley becomes more and more liberal, that they don't even understand basic biology, that we're going to begin falling into mistruths in other areas. You, know, you keep talking about this this virus. One of the great disservices or one of the great travesties is as much information we have, as quick as we have it, it's easily manipulated by those who have ulterior motives. They want to win elections. They want to win authority. They want to take political power. And so they don't really care about the truth of it. They're not bound by a commandment that says don't bear false witness. Instead, they use the advance, advances of Christendom as tools to undermine the very foundation that they've built.
1: And I think you hit the nail on the head there. They start looking for salvation in man-made systems because they see the threat, you know, whether which side of the aisle you're on, you perceive the other person as having points of view that are threatening to you. But The the hymn that says my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness, and of course righteousness means justice. So if we do get back to what Dr. Rajduni was promoting, the idea that God's law to us is His grace to us, and that if we want to prosper, and if we want to succeed, and if we want to experience the abundance we must have eyes to see it yes and you know you and i talk on other occasions how sometimes we can get lost in the idea that there's just not enough and are there going to be enough students to come to the school or however it is if we fall into that trap of scarcity it means we're looking at the wrong place and our hope is built on something other than jesus christ
0: yes well the i think the ironic part about scarcity in our world today is how scarcity is used, not just in terms of economics, right? There's another great economic example. You know, think about Airbnb versus Hilton, right? There's another place where Airbnb owns zero real estate properties, yet they have, you know, this great source of income for people staying overnight. But it's not just economics. It's sociological. It's personal. When you open up your cell phone and you have access to Facebook or Instagram, there are pictures of Prosperity, right? Whether you're into fitness, there are thousands of accounts created every day of people living healthy, fit lifestyles. Or there are thousands of accounts every day of people sharing their pictures of their wealth, cars, houses, things like that. But the strange thing is, even though those pictures of abundance, whether it's abundance in health or abundance in wealth, even though those are more prevalent we get the impression that those make it more difficult to be healthy or wealthy. Uh, and, And it's very strange because you'll see in some circles, this as an escape from the responsibility of that thing they see. So you take somebody like me, who's slightly over the average BMI, right? So you could do for some dieting and some running and you show me, my Instagram feed, and I'll see all these pictures of young men who do lots of push-ups and have chiseled abs. And my immediate envious temptation, because of my scarcity thinking, is to say, oh, he's probably on steroids. Oh, they probably (laughs) don't enjoy life very much. Oh, that's so unrealistic. And what I'm trying to do is escape the responsibility of the discipline that it took to get to be that person. What I should see is if that guy, who's not nearly as smart as me, who's not nearly as Christian as me, who's not nearly as capable of me, if he can get to that physic, then I should be able to do it too. Yet our natural sinful and envy-driven inclinations try to throw off that sense of personal responsibility and make excuses. I mean, I think probably women do the same, but we do the same thing in our families. We, We make these excuses about why we are the way we are, why we're poor, why we're stuck, instead of seeing the other people around us of examples of how it's possible to escape our scarcity
1: right right and so i think it'd probably be a good lesson for everybody to catch themselves when they're thinking there isn't enough or i have to preserve something because it won't be here tomorrow i discovered it in my own life i when i Every now and then I get this urge to clean a closet or a drawer, and I find these things that I have saved to use for a special occasion, which I totally forgot I had, and so I've tried to get myself into the habit of using the things I like. So if I really like this particular dress, instead of not wearing it because I might stain on it and then it won't be able to be worn again, if I enjoy it one or two times and then I stain it irrevocably, you know, irrevocably, then you know what? I got two nice uses out of it. But instead of this idea that we can't use what we have because we're afraid if we use it, then we don't have more.
0: Yes. I mean, ultimately, the, one of the greatest dangers of scarcity is it allows into your mind this idea of pre-planning or control Or the anxiety that somehow your future is limited by the conditions of this world. But the Christian life is all about new birth, about the phoenix rising from the ashes. And so as good Reformation Christians of a post-millennial mindset, we look at every sphere of life and we say, no matter what condition it finds itself today, whether the family is plagued by a 50% divorce rate, or whether the, the church is full of hypocrites, we say the promises from the Scripture are objective, and they're permanent, and they're eternal, because they come from God. And so, whether we start today with the church as it is, or the family as it is, we can claim the abundant promises because their strength, their vigor, their power doesn't come from this world. It doesn't come from even our efforts. It comes from the faithfulness of God. And so Christians should be encouraged, not discouraged, when they see a world in trouble, because we have the answers to make it better, bigger, and more abundant.
1: Right. I like that. The Christian has an abundance of solutions, and the goal would be to educate people to understand that their greatest enemy is not the person with more money or the person who has a certain color skin or the person who has all these belongings. Their greatest enemy is themselves in violation of God's law. And if we help free people from that slavery, no one will ever be able to enslave
0: them. That's right. The Christian always lives in that tension you know, it's, it's very interesting because in the very beginning of the Bible, it says that everything fell. That even the beautiful rose was affected by Adam's fall and thorns began to come out of it. You know, the, the, the edible plants began producing poison. You know, this idea that the creation is now at war with man. But at the same time, if you read through the book of Psalms, it says that this creation is good. How is that possible? It's because as God works throughout history, he's reversing the effect of Adam's fall, ultimately through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. But then we, as his vice-regents, are working out uh, those kinks in the system, those injustices or those inequalities. And the greatest promise of the Christian is knowing that Christ said, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. And so now we don't have to despair or worry about how it's all going to work out, but rather just trust that the Lord says he's going to give us everything we need to make everything he wants.
1: And for me, that means prepare for abundance. And that may sound like a strange idea, but I remember once somebody posed the question to me, what would you do if you had a million dollars? And the idea was, you had a million dollars, but you had to spend most of it on something other than yourself. And all of a sudden, I was thinking about what I would do, what sort of things would further the kingdom. And my conclusion was, I think I'm going to need more than a million dollars because the the goals and the, the purposes that I would see that would be important to fund and to help. So um, I started thinking, wow, okay, well, if I got a million dollars, I'd have to prepare for... God seeing to it that I would have a couple more.
0: Right. And and this kind of mind shift is important. There's a a fun book. I'm not sure how valuable it is for all of our listeners, but you've probably read it called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You've heard that. And the basic yeah. the basic premise behind the book is this this young man is debating between these two fathers about perspective. And his his poor dad has excuses for things like, why are you poor? Well, because I have so many kids. Or why can't we get X or Y? Well, because we can't afford it. And he says that the the rich dad doesn't allow himself to think that way. He says, well, why can't we have this? Instead of saying, I can't afford it, they ask the question, what can I do to buy it? Which seems very simple, but it's a paradigm shifting idea, especially when you apply it to Christianity. If you were to say, why is the church so austere? Or why is the church not able to answer these questions? It'd be easy to say we can't afford it. We can say the teaching is terrible, the seminaries are terrible, the Bible study books that are being published by Christian publishers are terrible. It's easy to focus inwardly that way and be the poor dad. But if we take the other perspective and say, you know, there's a a long trajectory of the church. It's going to have another several thousand years ahead of us. What can we do to make the church afford the leaders it needs? What can we do today to prepare the way for those next leaders? And that's going to give you completely different results. Instead of saying there's a scarcity in time, we have thousands of years. Instead of saying there's a scarcity in people, we say we have all the earth. And we have the promises that those things are going to change and transform as we trust God with them. I think that one of the greatest gifts to the church today is this coronavirus, right? It's really exposed how much we have failed to make Christ's covenant an important part of our daily life. The church has been labeled as non-essential, people have not met in churches, but yet here we have people who are now re-evaluating the priorities of the future, and so I hope that when this crisis pass, when people evaluate what is the future, they don't trust in the counties and health systems and unemployment checks and employers that failed them today, but rather look to build a solution that says, when hard times hit, I want to be able to trust that the support of the church is going to carry us through.
1: Yes we need to see the abundance around us and to make use of those very, very valuable gifts that God has given us.
0: Amen. And uh, I'd like to just close by inviting any of our guests to uh, email us any questions and to remind them uh, of the preacher's favorite verse, you know, right there where we talk about tithing. And uh, in the Bible, it says that if we... Test the Lord in our gifts and offerings, right? Bring into the Lord's storehouses your gifts and offerings and see if he will not pour out a blessing so abundant that you will not have room to store it. Now, do you approach your family that way? That if you just invest in your family, that God will pour out the blessing on your marriage, on your children. If you invest in your business, God will pour out the blessing on your clients and on your products. If you invest in your education, whatever it may be, Test the Lord in these. Bring your best and your riches to him and watch him fill up your storehouses.
1: Good enough. And to contact us, as Steve just mentioned, Out of the Question Podcast at gmail.com. And Steve, I look forward to episode one oh one.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.